Hi, and welcome to a supplemental episode of Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Jera, and thanks for tuning in. And with me today, uh, we, I am interviewing very special guest, Dr. Erin McDonald, who is the one of the science advisors on all of the current Star Trek shows. And uh, we talk about what her role is as a science advisor, how she got into astrophysics, which is her background, and also about her new kids book, Star Trek, My First Book of Space. And we have information about a giveaway of copies of the books if you listen to the interview. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us for uh, this very special supplemental episode of Women at Warp. My name is Jara, and I'm here today with our special guest, Erin McDonald. Erin, who has a PhD in astrophysics, is a tattooed one-woman STEM career panel with recognition as a researcher, speaker, engineer, and consultant before her current career. She lives in Los Angeles, working as a writer and producer, and is currently the science consultant for the entire Star Trek franchise. Welcome, Erin. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be back. Yeah, we're super excited to get this chance to chat a bit about your role working on Star Trek and your new book. Um, you've been a guest on our show before. Uh, we haven't actually done an interview, so um really excited to chat this evening. That's <laughs> great. I know. I feel like it's been a long time as well. Oh man, there is so much Star Trek stuff going on these days, and you're involved in all of it, uh, which is super, super exciting. Um, maybe I'll, I'll take a step back and ask basically which came first, your interest in science or Star Trek and science fiction? Ooh, good question. Um, I think it was really my interest in science. Um, just because I feel like most kids as you're growing up are naturally scientists, right? We're like trying to learn about the world around us. We're investigating, we're testing things, we're have a hypothesis that looks hot. Is that hot? Let me touch it. Yes, it's hot. Like, okay, I learned something. Um, and like most kids, I mean, I was obsessed with space and dinosaurs. And the reason it's a little bit hard for me to kind of say is because there was so much great science fiction coming out in the late 80s and early 90s that had to do with space and dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that uh, whether one came first or the other, I mean, they really were in parallel to me. And the science fiction just reiterated my love for all of that. And um, and then Star Trek, I didn't really even discover until I was in college. Um, mm -hmm. So I was a little bit later to the game, but just as fervent. <laughs> so what you're saying is that you know, had one thing gone differently, you might have been a paleontologist? Possibly, yes. I turned out biology was a little harder for me than astrophysics. <laughs> so I, I can follow the language of math, but I'm terrible at memorizing things. And I found that that was a big part of sort of learning how to be a biologist. But I did take a class on dinosaurs in college because I could. <laughs> and I still have that textbook. <laughs> cool. Um, and so how did you end up then on your path, path in astrophysics? Uh, you know, it was really, I mean, it's so funny. I was really influenced by popular culture that I loved the X-Files. I loved mm -hmm. Dana Scully. I just wanted to be her. That was <laughs> my goal in life. It was, what do you mm -hmm. want to be when you grow up? I want to be Dana Scully. And um, she did her undergraduate in physics. So mm -hmm. I had that in my mind that that's the natural next step for me is to study physics. But then I also really loved the film Contact. And so that image of sort of Ellie Arroway, you know, 
getting data from the radio telescopes and everything just I just love that image and I just wanted to be her and um that was really appealing to me so those kind of two fictional characters really kind of set me on my path of studying science and um yeah helping me decide what I wanted to be when I grew up <laughs> very nice um, and yes, oh my gosh, Contact is is such a good movie. And uh, I think so many of us were inspired by Dana Scully of, of, of people from our generation. Um, <laughs> so that's that's absolutely awesome. You, you mentioned a couple of characters that inspired you. Um, moving from your kind of academic training into your current work in writing and consulting, what science fiction characters have inspired you beyond that? <laughs> Um, that's great. I mean, for me, it was a really sort of interesting and slightly emotional journey for me because uh, Captain Janeway became my mentor when I was in graduate school. Like, mm-hmm. I really struggled getting a PhD because it's getting a PhD, which is hard to do. But I also didn't have this like long term goal of becoming a professor. I really just wanted to do a PhD because I enjoyed doing research and I liked the idea of doing it. And, um, but there were a lot of times that I wanted to quit and then I would watch. Voyager. Mm. And I would go, oh, I can't let her down. I have to I have to stick with it. I have to make her proud. And I ended up dedicating my PhD thesis to Captain Janeway because I couldn't have like done it without her. Um, and then kind of going through into storytelling and finding myself consulting and working in science fiction, um, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, but when I found out that I was going to be consulting on Prodigy and that Captain Janeway was going to be coming back as a character, like, honestly, that was when I feel like I finally figured out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, like, as a career, that it wasn't becoming those fictional characters. It was being able to write those characters Mm. and tell those stories for future generations of scientists. Because I did feel like, I did feel a lot of pressure and a lot of guilt for coming, for leaving an industry that was so underrepresented for women in general. Um, I felt like I was sort of letting future generations of women down by leaving that they wouldn't have me there to look up to. And then I realized like, there's so many other ways that I can still do that for people. And for me, it's through pop culture. That's where my heart really is. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think, um, you know, that obviously you're out there representing women in STEM to like a lot of audiences that maybe didn't think that that would be a possibility for them because you know, it's a, not necessarily always an academic audience. And there's lots of kids at these cons that you speak at. And um, so I, I can only imagine that like you're inspiring people in two ways, both like through yourself and the work that you're doing and talking about it, but also like through the stories you're helping to tell and the characters that are being represented that some other people are going to watch and decide they'll be their Captain Janeways. Yeah, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, it's something I'm really, I'm really passionate about. And yeah, if you if you had been like, no, I'm going to quit this, Captain Janeway would 100% just like get in the Delta Flyer and come back and get you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's Janeway's MO. I can't let her down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Cool. Well, I mean, I feel like um, some of our listeners would be curious, just kind of like, what does day-to-day work look like for a science advisor on Star Trek? 
Um, it's it's very different every day. Um, it's a lot of sort of. I mean, it really is. Consulting is a very independent job, so a lot of it is just kind of me sitting at home reading scripts and responding to emails. Um, I do when certain rooms are um like when writers rooms are in the process of writing seasons i will uh sit in on them pretty regularly that where i'll just kind of pop in and spend the afternoon for me it's a learning experience i'm basically shadowing the writers room as well as just being available if they have any questions um but other than that i mean I usually have scripts to read, uh, whether it's brand new scripts that I haven't seen yet, or whether it's changes to the production drafts as they're kind of being filmed. Um, and then I'm pretty much on call with a lot of the writers and showrunners. So if things are needing fixed at the last minute, or if they have a question, it will just be an urgent like, hey, do you have 20 minutes? Uh, I took a call half an hour ago that was one of those. <laughs> and um, and then I also meet with some of the post-production teams from different shows. So um, particularly, I think with Star Trek Discovery, it's no secret that I've helped them do a lot of sort of the visuals of stuff and some of the background information. Um, and so it really just depends where I'm needed when. I think the most surprising thing about my job once I started doing it was just how much reading there is that <laughs> you have to really love reading in order to do this. Mm -hmm. Which series is like, has been like the heaviest in terms of wanting to like include really robust science? Um, they all kind of fall on a different part of the spectrum from science to fiction, but I would say kind of Star Trek Discovery you know, they brought me on. That was the first show I worked on, and it was for season three. They brought me on my colleague, Professor Mohammed Noor, because they really wanted to integrate the science and they really wanted to make that a big part of the story, at least in the background, like at least having a backbone of science. And I think that's carried through, especially in season four, because I was there kind of early on when they were coming up with the ideas for the season. And so they really wanted to kind of stay true to those characters of just you know, that they are science officers who are sciencing their way through the galaxy, <laughs> like, trying to solve problems, gather evidence, figure things out. And, um, you know, so I that's probably the show I've done the most work on when it comes to science, direct science advising. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a lot of big science mysteries in Discovery. Um, and I would imagine just my guess is that when you have like a season long arc, you have to be a little bit more detailed about the concepts than when it's episodic. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting, you just reminded me because like, um, a lot of it too you know, if it's episodic, there's a problem, they try to figure it out, and then they find it, and then they solve it. And you mm -hmm. have this nice little three or four act, you know, story that breaks. But when you're having it go through a whole season, you do have a process of learning and a process of evidence gathering. And so the consulting, yes, there is the scientific things of like, how would this, you know, DMA behave? What would be the effects, the gravitational effects of it, all of those science aspects, but also like, as a scientist, how would you solve this mm. problem? You know, what data would you need that would lead you down the path to think that it's a primordial wormhole and then to see the effects of it and realize what it actually is? And then what would you do? And so it's it's not just consulting on the science aspect, but also on the scientist aspect. Oh, of, that's super yeah, cool. I had never thought about that, but that makes a ton of sense. And so many of the characters that we have are people that are 
like Janeway, like Burnham, kind of science first and Starfleet second, at least at first. Um, And uh, then end up being like, I also want to lead and have all these great additional skills. But of course, they're approaching it from a particular, you know, background based on their training and expertise. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention all the Vulcans that probably all come (laughs) from a little bit more of that perspective as well. Love their evidence. (laughs) Yep. Awesome. Well, I wanted to talk a bit about Prodigy because I'm so excited for the new episodes coming out soon. Um, And I would imagine it's a bit of a different process because it's a completely different audience. And so I'm wondering, how do you calibrate your input so it works for kids? Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is um, my skills in public education have really helped inform my work for Prodigy. After I left academia and I stopped doing research, I worked at a science museum for about a year. And with my background with a PhD in astrophysics, they were like, just go to the space area and just hang out there all day, like every day. (laughs) And and in doing that, you know, I would interact with five-year-olds who are learning about planets for the first time, or like an eight-year-old who has learned and knows everything there is to know about black holes for some reason, like at a college level. And it's impressive, but you're always trying to calibrate like how you're talking to kids and trying to figure out different ways to explain stuff and learning when you're kind of miscalculating the age group or the background that the kids have. Um, Because you really don't want to talk down to kids. You want to include them in the process. And so having that experience and learning that really kind of informed my role on Prodigy, where I'm not, yes, you know, I'm reviewing the scripts for like the binary white dwarf red giant supernova system or talking about time dilation for time amok. But then I'm also thinking like developing, especially a character like Rock Talk, who kind of wants to be a scientist, Mm -hmm. you know, and And it's a lot of like, what was little me like, you know, what are all the little kids out there who are interested in science? What gets them excited? What, you know, it's ups and downs as we've seen with her. And, um, and so, yeah, it's much more of a STEM education consultant role, I think, than, Mm -hmm. than a straight up science role. That's so cool. And I love Rock Talk. Uh, when oh. we did our episode, we're all just like, she's our fave. Um, she's so. the best. So <laughs> yeah. um, and this this reminds me, uh, well, a question that I was, was thinking about was, um, okay, so obviously Star Trek has a reputation for technobabble going back a long time. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, when do you think, like, when do you decide okay, we just need a thing that is like semi-plausible, but we don't need to go into it versus like, this is something we really need to make sure people get. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's awesome. I think oh, it's all about figuring out what the writers are wanting to do with it, you know, then, and a lot of times my consulting is telling them not to explain stuff. But like you said, there's a long history of technobabble, trechnobabble as it were, that we can pull from. and you know, when we were developing the kind of the science behind the burn, thinking of the parameters of saying like, okay, well, the burn had to happen faster than the speed of light. So it couldn't have happened on the surface of space time. Um, But it couldn't have happened like instantaneously. So the natural sort of place to go for that is subspace, you know, Mm -hmm. but subspace is like, it, it is analogous to a lot of things that we study in astrophysics. It's all theoretical stuff, but it's about 
kind of the fabric of our universe and what's beyond that. Um, but subspace as a Star Trek concept is pretty scientifically sound, like I said, but it's been around as well. We know the subspace comms buoys, like all of those things that we can lean on to tell the story where longtime viewers of Star Trek will at least have a passing familiarity. And one of the things that I love referencing is like tachyons because tachyons are always, you just it's like you associate that with Star Trek because mm-hmm. there's always a tachyon signature. But tachyons are a theoretical particle, but it just sounds like Star Trek technobabble. And so really that sort of, the whole Star Trek universe of technology that we don't necessarily have in our own culture now is still something that, I have to pay attention to, I have to understand fully, I have to find out how they can be folded into these stories. And um, I mean, it's fun. It's like I, I get to be a warp drive expert. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's so cool. Great. <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a, a techno babble f- phrase or like an episode from like previous Star Trek that like really irritates you because you're just like, <laughs> no, the science. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, the... Uh, <laughs> The original series, um, what does he say? It's in, I think it's in Tomorrow is Yesterday. And then they're going to slingshot around the sun. We forget that they did that pretty early on in in the original series. And Spock says, we're going to use the magnetic field of the sun to pull ourselves closer and then slingshot around. Uh (laughs) You're like, ooh, does not work like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, they quickly fixed it, of course, being in... um, you know, even in uh, the one with the whales, that perfect for yeah, mm-hmm. change to you know we'll go to yeah. warp while we're in the gravitational field of the sun. Mm-hmm. You're like, yes, that's correct. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. But then um, another fun anecdote, science-wise, is the fact that like I think in 1967, where they encounter is it the same? I don't think it, it might be the same episode, but where they encounter the black star, and mm. it was like a black star of high gravitational potential, and that's a black hole but Mm -hmm. the term black hole was even the first time it was used in a scientific paper was that same year wow and so you always have to remember like star trek like what we knew about start about science when these episodes were airing it's kind of humbling man yeah no kidding that's so cool um and uh do you have like a favorite contribution that you've made to this point Ooh, i I'm really proud of the dilithium science that we came up with for the burn. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to had to make a lot of, <laughs> but not not you know do a disservice to any of the dilithium stuff that had come beforehand. So I spent a lot of time doing research on that, and then you know I kind of just came up with this theory about having subatomic particles like we have normally but that also penetrate subspace and i went on a whole little brain adventure about like what if dark matters like that and like i just invented like a new subatomic particle for it but it really worked and it's consistent with like um all of the ways we've talked about dilithium in the past and i mean that was the first time for me too that i got to like contribute to long-standing canon you know that's Mm. been around for over 50 years Mm -hmm. to be like actually this is how like this is more information about dilithium and it's canon now (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome 
And do you have a any like science concepts or ideas that you have like been dying to see on Star Trek, but like just hasn't haven't had the opportunity yet? Um, I've been pretty lucky to be able to because a lot of things too is that the writers are on all of these shows are very scientifically curious. And mm-hmm. so they are reading science news. They see cool phenomena in science that hasn't um been used yet and so things like gravitational waves everyone was like oh Aaron you wrote gravitational waves I'm like no they did Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's because gravitational waves are like a thing now um and uh I got to put Euler's identity in Star Trek Picard that was exciting um I got to put a coronal mass ejection into Star Trek Discovery it was the first time we've ever had a coronal mass ejection I mean there's just weird space phenomena that I'd love to keep playing with but for the most part we get to do a lot of fun stuff (laughs) there's a lot of star trek so you always get that question of like hey what else can we do and we're like we've already done a lot in star trek (laughs) what else can we do yeah i mean i guess just keep your ears open and see what the next cool thing to come out is i feel like there's always just so much interesting space science news um yeah so yeah, for I'm sure. sure that not to mention <laughs> other, you know, parts of science that you can just kind of spacify. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I want to talk a bit about your awesome new adorable board book uh, called My First Book of Space. Um, can you tell us a bit about how the project came about? Yeah, my um my good friend Rob Perlman, who has written sort of Star Trek uh family fun books uh for a long time. He wrote Fun with Kirk and Spock, mm-hmm. Red Shirt Adventures, those sort of things. Um, he had had this idea to write uh sort of baby board books that thinking about how influential his you know, those books are when you're growing up. We remember those very first books that we wanted to read over and over and over again when we were kids. And just having the opportunity to have that be Star Trek themed, and especially how special that would be for the parents who are Star Trek fans to have that opportunity to kind of share that with their kid really early on. And um, and another thing that Rob and I are both really passionate about is the idea of STEAM, that it's like mm. STEM plus arts. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, we decided, he decided that he wanted to do this package and then approached me to write the STEM one. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote Star Trek, my first book of colors. And it was really a collaborative effort. And it was so fun to just write. And um, yeah, that was that was kind of the origin of it. Awesome. So um, you you mentioned a little bit about the process. um, And uh, I will say, um, I, um, first of all, definitely I picked one up as a gift for friends who um, have a young child. Um, But also um, personally loved, I will not spoil it, but the Voyager reference um yes. and, uh, I um I was uh my boyfriend was reading it as well and just like burst out laughing at that part it's delightful awesome. good um, I was so happy <laughs> um how has it been since it's come out have you been talking to people who are using the book and yeah yeah what's what's been exciting I mean yeah it's funny because a little of the process like it was probably the hardest, like, uh, I think it's 11 sentences I've ever had to write. <laughs> oh, no kidding. It's like one of those, like, five-word yeah. stories or something. Yeah. That it was just, you know, even though it was Star Trek-themed, 
the words themselves, there's nothing fictional in them. Like yeah. it is science. <laughs> there is mm-hmm. science in it. Um, but there's references to Star Trek and it's ways to sort of integrate it. So it was a matter of like writing it for the right age group, writing it in the lyrical way that, you know, kids can appreciate. And before they're even really processing the words, they like how the words sound and then working in Star Trek references to it. Um, But what's been really special for me is that, you know, I have a lot of friends who have kids who are a little bit above that age bracket of board books, but you know, they're, for example, like six or seven year old is reading it because they can read the words out loud. Now, you know, they can actually try to read the words. There's some Mm -hmm. not small words in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's cool pictures, you know, even though it's a board book, it's still space pictures with Star Trek art on them. And that's, uh, that's fun for everyone. Yeah, can confirm pictures are (laughs) great. And um, I would imagine that too, you're probably also thinking about how do you make this, like, not just a book about like my first book about the solar system, like it's like, about star trek space so like balancing (laughs) that it's about this like space in a fictional universe but making it accurate is i think very cool and you did a great job at that thank you yeah i wanted to go because i think so much of early space education just focuses on the solar system and it kind of has this trickle effect that people don't really understand what we call the cosmological address that it's like a a star system that is within a galaxy that is within a universe. And we kind of conflate star systems and galaxies a lot. And science fiction does not help with that (laughs) because it makes that mistake. And galaxies and universes. Exactly. I mean, there's like the verse, a galaxy far, far away. That's really just like eight star systems. (laughs) So all of these little things. Um, So I really did want to kind of follow that journey of the cosmological address as you go out and even talk about things that we still don't fully understand that kids can sometimes realize that there's more to learn about space. That's very cool. Love it. Um, So um, I I will mention that also um, we have three copies of your book to give away to our listeners. Um, So I'm just going to give the instructions if you would like to win one of these books. If you would like to win a copy of Star Trek My First Book of Space by Dr. Erin McDonald, please send us an email at crew at womenatwork.com and tell us your favorite episode of Star Trek that features a spatial anomaly. And you must have a U.S. address for this giveaway and entries are open until midnight Eastern on Sunday, November 6th. Um, And we'll say that uh, regardless of whether you are successful in this giveaway, suggest that this book would make a great gift for something you have for the kids in your life, holidays, birthdays, and stuff coming up. So Erin, before we wrap up, are there any other current projects or appearances you want to promote to our listeners? Um, I'm going to be on the Star Trek cruise next year. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And then we've got Star Trek Mission Seattle coming up at the beginning of next year. Because uh, what is time? It's going to be here oh before my we know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are sort of my next in-person events. Um, but otherwise, you can pick up this book. You can find me online. And then I also just keep an ear out for our short film that I actually just finished with Mary Chifo, um, who played Laurel on Star Trek Discovery. We co-produced a short film. We wanted to write a LGBTQ-themed sci-fi starring women by women. And we're very proud of that. So right now it's on the festival circuit, so you can't watch it yet, but it will be available for the public soon. Awesome. What's the title of the film? It's called Every Morning. And it also has a special cameo appearance by Terry Farrell. 
Ooh, this sound all sounds extremely up uh, our crew, crew's alley and our listeners alley. Um, so very excited to you to see it when it's uh, widely available. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and um, best wishes uh, with the rest of the ongoing Star Trek uh, projects that you're working on um, and uh, hopefully see you soon at a convention. Great. Thank you. Live long and prosper. It was so fun to interview Dr. Aaron McDonald today. I really encourage you to check out the book. And if you are looking for me on the internet, you can find me at Jara Penguin. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin on Twitter. And you can also find me at TrekkieFeminist.com. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit WomenAtWarp.com, email us at Crew at WomenAtWarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at WomenAtWarp. Thanks so much for listening.